Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to welcome. Please feel free to come speak one of our staff members at the conclusion of this event, or visit iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu backslash donate. Before we begin the lecture, we ask that you take a moment to silence all electronic devices. Today, we will be hearing from Mr. Mark Metcalf, who will deliver a lecture entitled, How the PLA Applies Sun Sea's Art of War to Contemporary Warfare. Mr. Mark Metcalf joins the McIntyre School, uh, has joined the McIntyre School in 2020 as a lecturer in global commerce, uh, teaching doing business in China a seminar that investigates the historical, political, and sociological roots uh, of business practices and norms in the PRC. Since 2014, he has taught courses in Chinese literature in UVA's Department of East Asian Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, including the semester-long seminar on the art of war. Prior to UVA, Professor Metcalf spent uh, over 25 years as a contractor, working as a signals analyst, systems engineer, project manager, technical translator, an intelligence analyst in support of the Department of Defense and other U.S. government agencies. Assignments involved extensive travel to Europe, Asia, and Australia. This was preceded by service as a naval officer, during which he was initially assigned aboard a frigate homeported in Japan, where he qualified as a surface warfare officer. He subsequently transferred to the Naval Security Group and spent the majority of his naval career as a naval cryptologist, retiring at the rank of commander. Professor Metcalf's current research is focused on contemporary Chinese military perspectives regarding strategy and ethics. He enjoys translating and analyzing Chinese military texts in order to better understand the PRC military's approach to decision-making. He is particularly interested in understanding the uniquely Chinese historical and philosophical roots uh, that engender such practices and perspectives uh, that are often misunderstood in the West. Professor Metcalf has published his research in academic and professional journal articles and book chapters. He has been invited to the U.S. Naval War College to give presentations about topics ranging from the role of technical standardization in the Chinese PLA Navy ship construction, the Chinese perspectives on the relevance of the art of war to modern warfare. Since twas, uh, yes, uh, since modern warfare, please welcome Mr. Martin. Thank you all. Thank you, uh, thank you, Sean, for that nice introduction. Um, thank you all for coming out on a nice warm day today. It's a lot cooler in here, having walked outside just before I came over here. Um, today we'll be talking about uh, People's Liberation Army and how they consider the art of war still relevant in the 21st century. And let me just jump right into the presentation. I'm going to be talking about these general areas, why I'm interested in this topic, uh, and the methodology that I use. How the PLA teaches the art of war. And then I'm going to give you a lot of different examples. A lot of them hopefully are going to be counterintuitive. Things that whenever you read the art of war for the first time, you looked at it and said, I never would have gotten that from the art of war. Hopefully you're going to have some of those kinds of moments, like I've had plenty of. And then finally, I'm going to talk about some cross-domain applications of the art of war. As Sean said, um, I have given this talk or versions of this talk at the Naval War College in Newport. Uh, and they were kind enough, actually, to, uh, to sponsor the first couple talks that I gave up there. Uh, this is a, an updated version uh, of that talk, and uh, I've added a couple more interesting, uh, interesting bits. Before I get into the actual talk, however, I want to do a little terminology explanation. First of all, some of you may be saying, you have this written as S-U-N-Z-I and not S-U-N space T-Z-U. Same art of war. And yes, you can tell by those, those pictures over there. There's a picture of Sunza and there's a picture of Sunza. The difference is the romanization that was used to, to give the name. Uh, the Chinese name up there, in simplified Chinese, uh, Sunza, Master Sun, uh, is, is what, how, how this is pronounced. And so I will be referring uh, throughout this presentation to the Sunza, regardless of whether you want to use Wei Jiao's romanization on the left or opinion organization on the right. He's also the purport, purported author of The Art of War because most scholars think that the text was compiled two or three hundred years after he supposedly lived. And so, the typical in, very, in, in early Chinese literature and early Chinese thought, uh, 
uh, it, it was written well after he, uh, he was around. Uh, I'm also going to be talking about uh, Sun Tzu Mingfa, which is the Chinese name for the text, Sun Tzu's Art of War. And I bring that up, I bring the Chinese up because I use the abbreviation throughout this presentation, SZBF, mainly because it takes up so much less real estate than writing out Sun Tzu's Art of War every time I bring it up. And so if you see SZBF, I'm talking about the Sun Tzu, which is another way to refer to the text. It's Sun Tzu's Art of War because other people wrote their own arts of war during the Warring States period. Um, consultants are consultants. They all want to sell their their shtick, and this is this is Sun Tzu's shtick. Uh, so this is uh, Sun Tzu's art of war. Uh, finally, I'm going to be using terms like enemy and adversary. They're not meant to be political commentary. They're meant for textual fidelity. It's how the PLA refers to certain aspects. I'll be talking about. It's how the Sun Tzu refers to. So please don't read anything into it when I'm talking about adversaries and So the reason I'm interested in studying texts like uh, PLA texts on Sun Art of War is because I want to understand how an adversary or a potential adversary thinks. How they put the facts together and then how they come up with their version of reality. And uh, one of my role models is Gilbert Chesterton who said, we think that for a general about to fight an enemy, it is important to know the enemy's numbers, but it is still more important to know the enemy's philosophy. And uh, so if you look up at the upper right-hand corner up there, you see the, the objective is to get literally get inside somebody's head, see how you think. Or if you don't want to be that, you know, uh, that cartoonish, you can go down to the bottom right-hand corner and read one of my favorite lines from uh, George C. Scott in the movie Patton from the 1970s. Where after uh, Patton beat Rommel in North Africa, he said, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. Uh, and to me, that's a role model for what I'm trying to do. So my objective is to present PLA perspectives that are typically only available from Chinese sources, things that haven't been translated into English. And the methodology is it's not rocket science. I get books that are publicly available, my classified text. I analyze them, I translate them, I analyze them, and then I report on them. I say, here's what the PLA says. I press the I believe button. That's what this big I believe button is here. If the PLA says something, I write it down. I don't argue with it. Although I do make, I make comment on it. And when I make comments, I, comment, I highlight them as my own comments. And this is kind of facilitated by my, for lack of a better word, non-traditional career. I've, I've done a lot of things over the last 45 years or so. and. This kind of brings everything together. It's a lot of fun. Well, current areas of interest, uh, Sean mentioned the art of war, obviously, that's why I'm here today. Military ethics is something I got into uh, a few years ago. Uh, very interesting topic, PLA, the PLA's view military ethics, a lot different than the West. And I've got some publications coming out on that. And then uh, Navy history and Navy technical standardization. I also want to point out that the Sunset is not the only source of PLA strategic thought. I think, I think most people, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence by saying that, but I want to state that for the record. There are many of other sources, and I haven't all listed up here. Um, the, uh, I guess the, the thing to really highlight, though, is the Chinese Communist Party's ideology is really predominant in PLA strategic thought. When you read even the even commentaries on the Sunset, uh, there's probably as much quoted about Mao Zedong and what Mao Zedong had to say about the Sun Tzu and military thought as just about any other sources. And same with Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping, the big three that are enshrined in the PRC Constitution. Uh, they contribute to PRC's uh, PLA strategic thought. So let's get on to the text. Sun Tzu's Art of War, 13 chapters. Those of you, I'm sure most of you have read it. Uh, 6,071 characters in the received text. It's written in classical Chinese, which is different than modern Chinese, uh, which causes problems if you, uh, if you don't know how to read classical Chinese and you try and translate it using modern Chinese. And, that, and the PLA has to deal with that, and I'll explain why and how. Um, some of the topics, I'm not going to read through them, but you can recognize the, the, the topics uh, a lot of times used out of context. And I mention this because context is crucial to understanding this text. You need to understand what is being spoken about, when it is being spoken about. The Sun is a very non-linear narrative. You go from chapter to chapter to chapter, it's going to hit 
all sorts of different aspects of a topic. Uh, may not bring up something for a couple chapters, and then a couple chapters later, there it is again, but from a different perspective. Uh, concepts are interwoven. You need to look at the, the text in its entirety to really understand what's being said. So to do something like pull all warfare is based on deception out of context and say, now I've got the Sunza and put it on a bumper sticker, that doesn't do the, the Sunza justice. Um, in fact, uh, my good friend of the Naval War College, uh, Professor Dex Wilson, is, is named, this, uh, named these things axiomatic platitudes, which I think is a great description. Armies go to war to win. Wow, that's brilliant. Uh, know yourself, know your enemy. Got it, okay. That's not what the Sunza is about. Part of the Sunza, but the Sunza in its totality is, is more important. And you see the 13 chapter titles over there for different types of topics that are addressed. So, we're finally at the PLA and Sunza studies. Um, the thing I like about PLA Sunza studies is they have an operational focus and they provide a lot of practical advice. They address the meaning and the military significance of what is written about in the Sunza. And they're used in military education and training. Um, but the bottom line is, if too long didn't read, Sunza uh, is relevant. Sunza is relevant to modern warfare. And you're going to see this phrase repeated in a lot of the slides in the future because that's what the PLA is saying. Another thing about these texts, these PLA texts, is um, their scholarship is just amazing. It's, it's comprehensive. When I started reading my first one, I, I went, oh, this is just going to be some kind of you know, political whitewashing of. Uh, of the census to make the CCP look good. Well, no, it wasn't. It was really good academic scholarship. And like I said before, the text was written, the original text was written in classical Chinese. PLA takes that and turns it into modern Chinese. They, tra they, they, they translate it into modern Chinese, provide commentaries, analyses, narratives. They also provide a lot of information from non-Chinese military history and strategic theory. Uh, and, I, and I'll give you a lot of those examples today. Uh, it's obvious that the PLA is seriously studying what is going on, what has gone on in the West over the last couple of millennia, and how uh, the West is thinking about warfare. Uh, and uh, not to our credit, in the West, I don't think we're doing as good a job uh, regarding China. The other thing I want to highlight about the Sunza studies is the PLA affiliation. I argue that the, the affiliation, whether it's an author, who's a PLA author who was taught at the PLA University, or the texts are published by uh, PLA uh, Press, or they're published by the Academy of Military Sciences Press. If they have a PLA affiliation, that gives them authority. They're speaking for the PLA. The PLA would not give them that uh, that authority if the PLA didn't stand behind them. Finally, you may say, well, why, why is PLA spending so much time, so much money on uh, getting all these books published? Well. I think the most succinct explanation of that is from uh, this text called so Sons of Bingfong Structural Analysis, where Fu Chao says, different scholars and military experts all learn from research the Sons of, but academic conclusions and practical conclusions are entirely different. The relative superiority of theoretical thought is different, which basically translated basically says, academics can be as theoretical as they want, but when you're talking about Military. The military is interested in practical aspects of things, so you need to focus on you need to focus on that. That's what the PLA focuses on. I didn't put the Chinese titles up. I just put the English translations up. But here's I've probably got over uh, forty uh, PLA texts at home uh, that I've gathered over the years, and here are some of them. Um, they're they're all interesting in their own ways, and uh, all these texts either are or were publicly available. Some of them have kind of disappeared over the last couple of years from the bookshelves. Uh, some of the more interesting ones, in fact, uh, from the bookstores. But anyway, these are, these are the, uh, the types of texts that you can find. But does that mean that the PLA is 100% behind teaching the Sunsa? No, it doesn't. Uh, you have people who are dubious about teaching the Sunsa. They're saying things like, we're talking about high-tech wars. What use is there to studying strategic thought from the time of bullocks, carts, halberds, shields, and famuses? Those of you who recognize that from Sons of Chapter 2. It's a quote. It's meant to, it's meant to discredit uh, teaching the Sons of. Uh, 
Uh, and this was this is one of the introductory chapters to this text, uh, China's Historical Strategic Thought Lecture. Uh, and the conclusion that the editor reaches is this sort of understanding is at the least not well-rounded. Saying basically you need to understand the students to understand military thought. He goes on to say if you are unable to understand history, then you'll be under unable to understand the present and then unable to compare and accurately forecast the future. It's the basis of understanding what, um, what military strategic thought is about. And then finally, uh, in this section, uh, the census broadened the scope and has basically established the foundation of traditional uh, Chinese military thought. That quote is actually from Sun Yat-sen, uh, who shares the surname with the Sun Tzu. How do you approach the Sun Tzu? This is from Sun Tzu Big Thought Lectures, another Academy of Military Sciences uh, uh, press uh, text by a gentleman named uh, Bradley, uh, senior colonel named Bradley. He said what you should do is use the past to serve the present. You should focus on the relationship between the topical and historical military thought. And he uses very traditional ways of describing this. He refers to the topical as the warp, and he refers to the historical as the woof. woof. Uh, looking at this diagram in the bottom right-hand corner, uh, how fabric is put together. It's all overlaid and integrated, and you, know, you can't tell where one begins and the other one ends. And it's, that's used quite a bit in early. And then he also says something that may surprise you. Uh, earnestly read and understand the Sun Tzu. Emphasize inspired thinking and avoid rote memorization. You want the Sun Tzu to work for you. You're not just there to regurgitate what you're reading in the Sun Tzu. There's also a political angle. Uh, Chinese Communist Party publications, uh, their uh, PLA political publications, routinely cite the Sun Tzu as a good source of uh, lots of applications. And you can read them everything from morale to patriotic education and so on. Uh, this is a picture, uh, this is the same gentleman's major, uh, Yin Dong. He was on the very first slide. You saw him diligently looking at the, reading the Sun Tzu. Uh, if you could read that really fine print. Uh, this is him talking, talking to his troops. Number one, he's a PLA rocket force major. The highest, high tech of the highest tech. He's, he's supporting the Sun Tzu. He's talking to his troops about the importance of the Sun Tzu and the rocket forces. Another thing that's interesting about this picture is if you look in the back, you see these slats that look like a fence. But if you zoom in, like over on the right-hand side, you see that those are actually meant to be replicas of the bamboo strips that Chinese texts were uh, traditionally written on back uh, in, uh, about uh, 2,400 years ago. And what's written on them, the section that's circled here, is actually from Sons of Two, Chapter 6. Uh, talking about how you motivate your troops to, to fight against the enemy, and how you uh, motivate your troops you know, whenever they whenever they capture things, how you reward them for capturing things. So again, this is at an even deeper level. This is telling the troops this: you know, we we think it's important enough to really understand the roots of your culture, to really understand traditional Chinese military thought. And we have put the Sunza. I think I figured it out. It would have been with this many characters on this many uh, slats this big, it would have been several hundred slats that went around a, a base if you actually wanted to put the entire slits on it. I'm not sure they did. I haven't seen pictures of the whole thing, but, but that to me right there is impressive enough. So the bottom line, the Sunza is relevant to modern warfare. So let's look at a couple different types of perspectives. Let's see. This is the one that really caught my attention uh, initially. Sunza four, excuse me, Sunza five and Sunza six talk about this concept of shoot and sure, the idea of weak points and strong points. Uh, and you can read three different translations that I use in my course uh, by Ames, Mayer, and Sawyer. They all have slightly different translations, but they're all saying basically the, the same thing. You focus on the weak points, you attack the weak points, and when you do, that's going to be like a whetstone being hurled at eggs, which is a great early Chinese trope. Did you read that in Chinese? Uh, and you also, Sons of Six, it says, so on the path to victory, avoid the enemy's strong points and strike where the enemy is weak. And you go, okay, that makes sense. So if I'm going to attack that, that uh, fortification over there, I'm going to attack it where it's not really fortified. And, and I got it. I got Sons of and, and weak points and strong points. But do I really? Because there's another gentleman, another retired senior colonel, uh, Ma Chun, uh, who, who was a uh, 
real expert on the sunset. You, you go to him on, on YouTube, he has lecture after lecture after lecture about the sunset. He's, he's just a, a sunset machine. Uh, and he wrote this in his, his book called Majo and Explains Sons of Info. He said, regarding, and then all these different topics, regarding true quality, low quality is shooting, and high quality is sure. Regarding true support, perfunctory support is true, and effective support is sure, and so on and so forth. Look at all these different topics. Talking about weaknesses and strengths is much more than talking about just fortified uh, installations. It's talking about anything that an, an adversary can attack or anything that you can attack as far as the enemy goes. You know, let's say uh, the enemy has declining troop morale. That's a weakness. What do you do? You attack that morale and make it even worse. Uh, let's say the, uh, the, the enemy's really concealed. Well, and maybe you should find another weakness that the enemy has because that concealment is going to be a strength that may be tough to overcome. But again, the point is, this is not only is the sons of relevant modern warfare, but this is a totally different perspective on true and true. Uh, particularly when you realize, as Ma Jones says in his text, he was taught this when he first started his military training. They were taught to memorize this. So this is instilled in, uh, in the troops very early in, uh, in the troop training. So that's, that's the real example that really caught my attention and really got me excited about reading DLA texts about the Sons of Historical examples, lots of them. Uh, Ren Lee uh, wrote the Sons of Ingfa lectures. And it's my go-to text. I have a copy if anybody wants to look at it afterwards. And uh, he has 62 historical examples in this text. And you can see which countries they, they point to. You can see how many examples he has and what era they are. And not surprisingly, there, there's nothing about you know, modern China. Uh, the closest that we get is, is the Civil War. And after 1949, there really isn't anything. They focus more on foreign examples. And so when you look at the U.S. examples, you see that there are 11 examples from modern, let's say, post-World War II history. And uh, those examples are listed over on the right-hand side. And I'm going to be talking in detail about uh, Chapter 9 and Chapter 10. Chapter 9 is a great chapter in the sense that uh, a half chapter is like a shopping list of all these things that you should pay attention to when you're going to reconnaissance. When you look at the dust and it's going a certain way, that means the enemy is doing this. Uh, if, you, if you see the enemy leaning on his spears, that means the morale is low. If you see the officers arguing, that means that they're not really in control. You know, so on and so forth. All these things. And they're, they're relevant. In, in talking with people who do this, this kind of boots-on-the-ground stuff for a living uh, in, in the military, uh, this, is, this kind of stuff you look at, I mean, the specifics change, but the principles are the same. You find out whatever you can find out about uh, an adversary, and you use that to your advantage. And so, this is this is in the uh, in the Sunza, and Renly explains why you should care about this. You should care about it because the U.S. Army cared about this. U.S. military battlefield reconnaissance in the Afghan War. And I, I warn you, I normally don't like to put extended citations here, but I'm putting it up here because um, you need it for context. It doesn't do it justice just to pull a couple nuggets out of citations. But anyway, this is the introduction. Basically, the historical examples have an introduction, some details, and then a conclusion. Maybe three or four pages long discussing this. And here's how the uh, US military battlefield of Brecky and Afghan work is, opens up. Uh, you've got to conduct careful battlefield reconnaissance use good analytic reasoning and come up with the correct judgment to do justice to reconnaissance. And during the Afghan war, the US military had a practice of carrying out various types of reconnaissance methods to obtain battlefield information and determine the enemy situation, which precisely embodied this very thought of Sunza. Can you say it any more clearly? The Sunza is relevant to modern warfare, at least in this case. But let's give you some examples, if you don't believe. Intended audience. Uh, first, technical. Starts out by saying the Afghan war was an information age war. That's significant. It's, it's saying 
if this is the kind of war we're expecting you to fight, and the Afghan war is that kind of war. Owing to the complexity, we have to promptly find a strike target. It's hard work. So how did the U.S. deal with it? They put in covert monitoring devices so they could really track the Taliban forces. They set a monitoring station on the Afghan border so they could monitor telephone conversations and emails. Uh, they airdropped advanced sensors so they could track and figure out what was going on and determine what the enemy situation was. They did reconnaissance right. And again, that's a translation from this book. When I read some of this, I was going, okay, that's uh, interesting. Uh, but it goes beyond that. It's, it's not only technical. Sometimes you have to put boots on the ground, just like Sunza said. And he says to rely uh, on overhead reconnaissance and technical reconnaissance would be difficult to obtain a comprehensive picture of the enemy. So you put boots on the ground and you go and let them do their thing. And uh, this explains some of the things that they did, hiding in mountains and caves, disguising themselves as local residents. But again, this all points back to the Sunza. This is the kind of information Sunza says to collect. This is the kind of information that U.S. Special Forces are collecting and allied section concludes with the significance. The methods that are proposed by Sunzer are relatively primitive. They acknowledge that. However, it's not the methods themselves, it's the, it's the thought. It's that based on U.S. military's use of reconnaissance methods in the Afghan war, we can realize that the principles of battlefield reconnaissance and reasoned determination proposed by Sunza still have a guiding significance. Again, very clearly stated. Another example, so it's a 10, terrain. Very end of the chapter, final paragraph, it says, if you know your opponent and you know yourself, victory will not be at risk. That's, we've already heard that before, earlier in the sunset. And then he puts the cap on it and says, if you know heaven and you know earth, your victory is to be unlimited. And in this context, heaven is weather and climate, and earth is terrain and the lay of the land. So as you read that, I'm sure the first thing that pops to your mind is sandstorms. Uh, not me. I saw this and I said, you've got to be kidding. And then I started reading what they were saying and said, you know, he's, he's absolutely right. So it explains, you know, the Sunta talks about various types of weather and geographic conditions. It said, U.S. forces did it right against sandstorms. The pros and cons of their experiences and lessons learned prove that in modern warfare, Sunta's words are still an unchanging rule. You can't, you can't be more clear than that. Let's see what examples they use. Well, they used, uh, it looks like they used uh, 23 years of it. They start out with the Iran hostage situation, which was just, it was a disaster in large part because of sandstorms. And then they talk about the first Gulf War, where sandstorms wreaked havoc on a lot of the missile systems, uh, probably fires, so on and so forth. The U.S. didn't really understand how to fight in sandstorms. And then finally, in 2003, the text argues that the U.S. military forces turned disadvantage into advantage. And I highlight that because in early Chinese thought, especially at the time of Sun Tzu, you look at what a superior general can do. Either it's really bad at this end, or it's really good at this end. And if you find your army way here or on the very bad side, it's your job as a general to move your army to the very good side. Only really good generals can do that. It's saying, kind of between the lines, this is the way the U.S. military did it. They really understood how to fight war, and they they just did a great job. They, they took advantage of it. How did they take advantage of sandstorms? Well, they talked about the impact of ground and the altitude combat operations, and basically what this says is the U.S. military uh, changed their tactics whenever they encountered, oh, whenever they encountered uh, a sandstorm. They went ahead and used their, their high-tech weapons that could deal with sandstorms, uh, the enemy down below was below the sandstorm, and they didn't know what hit them, basically. They, they were at a severe disadvantage. And the text highlights that the U.S. military derived lessons from the previous failures. And they, they grasped the laws of troop deployment under sandstorm types of disadvantageous atmospheric conditions. They cunningly used the situations and on this basis achieved success. Um, and again, punchline. This instance verified that Sunza's concept has important leadership significance in modern warfare. Again, the U.S. did it right, uh, which I will shift to the next slide and say, this is one thing I came away with. I had to put in a slide about this. 
this is the tone in describing what the U.S. does in, in this sense of text. The U.S. has impressive capabilities. You do not read any criticism or condescension in the text. It is, it, I wouldn't say it's admiration, but it's respect. And the key message is don't underestimate them. These folks know what they're doing. They face extremely challenging problems in, in challenging environments, and they met it, and they succeeded. And the bottom line is, the most important aspect of it, though, is the U.S. experience has validated the tenets of the Sunset. The Sunset is relevant to modern programs. So those are a couple of historical examples. Now let's talk about everybody's favorite Sunset topic, and that's deception. And see over here, there's a great, great calligraphy from a retired uh, Kelly general. All workers based on deception. And I'm going to start with a little story from uh, the, the uh, talking about uh, a battle that took place back in 638 BCE. And I mention it because it's, it shows up in a lot of uh, PLA descriptions of, uh, of deception as well. And basically the story is the state of Song and the state of Chu are at each other's throats. And it's the uh, army of Chu is getting ready to cross a river. And the state of Song is in a, in a position where they can attack them at that point. And so the general, the Song general, goes to the Song ruler and says, can we attack? And the Song, and the Song uh, ruler says, no, you can't attack. That's, that's not cricket. We don't attack armies crossing the river. And the Jew general walked away, yes, sir. And, and, and now they're crawling out of the water, coming out of the river. He said, OK, they're coming out of the river. Can we attack them now? He said, no, you can't attack them until they're in their battle formations. And so the Song general, general went back and said, yes, sir. And, and then they lined up their two armies, the Chu army being much stronger than the Song army, and the Song army was slaughtered. Uh, the, the moral of the story is, you know, sometimes being an honorable person uh, is, is not the thing to do. And this, this is how it's stated, this is how it's framed in Sun of uh, descriptions from the PLA text. In fact, even Mao Zedong said in, in a protracted war, he has a quote in there saying, we're not that the Duke of Song, so we have no use for that asinine type of virtue and morality. That's the kind of reputation that Duke of Song has. He used a little stronger language and stronger history. But anyway, uh, he was not impressed. So with that as a background, you can understand why uh, Red Lee says, this is the most universally shocking theory in the Sunset, the idea of deception, because it goes against everything people used to fight war prior to this time. Here are the 12 different ways of deception that are discussed in Sunset Chapter 1. Or if there's a way of deception, you can read them. When you look at these, um, it, it's pretty straightforward. The first four, you look at them and go, yeah, one is active, give the appearance of being inactive when you're near or far. You look at those and go, yeah, that's, okay, that's deception. You're trying to trick the enemy into thinking that, that something's happening that isn't. But then you get down to the last eight, and you start going, if they're greedy, tempt them. If they're secure, prepare for them. If they're angry, aggravate them. How is that deception? Yeah, that's a question. Every time I taught this class, we had a good 15-minute discussion on this, and none of us really had an answer. Uh, because you know, it looks like whoever put this list together has a different perspective of deception. But fortunately, Red Lee doesn't just put this up and, and make that statement and walk away. He explains himself. First of all, the 12 methods of deception, it's an interesting list. Those are just examples. Uh, but we'll, and you can categorize the methods, you know, hiding the true, showing the false, is it manipulation and misrepresentation. You know, there are a lot of ways to look at it. Are you talking about uh, you know, offensive or defensive applicability? You're actually talking about both because it, depending on whether you're giving or receiving, you really want to pay attention to both aspects of that. But then Bradley talks about the categories of deception. And he breaks up the 12 examples into three categories. He says the first three are deceiving or misleading, like we would probably think of the West. And then he says um, the next, next four are adopting a flexible response strategy. And you go, okay, yeah, I can see how you characterize those as that. How's that deception? And then the last four, weakening an adversary's warfighting capabilities. Again, yeah, those like a good way of weakening enemy warfighting capabilities. How's that deception? So it leaves you with a question, 
maybe the perfect way, maybe deception, the way he's thinking about it, is different. And uh, I argue that he is. Because here's how he describes deception. The purpose of the way of deception is aimed at comparing our strength and that of the enemy. This, remember, this deception section shows up at the end of as soon as the chapter one, after he's talked about how you go and, and, and basically you know, compare your strengths and, uh, and, and figure out what your advantages are, disadvantages, and so on and so forth. You do that, and then you look for ways of increasing your advantageous conditions and reducing the adversary's advantageous conditions. Therefore, establishing our dominant position and allowing us to gain military victory at a relatively low cost. Now this Norman Rockwell picture did not come out of a Chinese tomb with the Sunza. Uh, but I argue this is probably the best picture that's ever been drawn of what Sunza deception means. Because you have two people. You have one person who is trying to uh, get the advantage of a lower price. And you've got another person who's trying to get his advantage of a higher price. And they're doing it not really in public, but they're, they're trying to improve their situation so they get what they want. I would argue that's what you're trying to do in this, in this perspective of deception. The nature of deception. Uh, Sunza then goes on and talks about it can't be spoken of in advance. Sunza talks about there are a couple different aspects of that. One is security implications, obviously. You don't want to talk too much about how you're going to be using deception because if that breaks out, it causes problems for your deception clients. But also, there are planning implications. And this is something, again, that surprised me when I was reading the text how much this was emphasized. There's a need to adapt to change. Um, the Sunza argues about that. I, I'm sorry, the PLA text argue about this consistently. Uh, for example, Sunza Bingfa and submarine operations talks about uh, saying tactical principle uh, in this battle, this time, can bring about a victory. But if you do it the next time, and it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that the tactical principle is wrong. It means you used the wrong principle at the wrong time. And uh, so you need to use the right tool for the right job, basically. And common sense, but again, interpreting the Sunza this way, interpreting deception this way, and, and it needs change, is, again, shows up in, the, in these texts. Finally, the goal of deception. Two different ways of translating this. I put up both Victor Mayers and uh, Ralph Sawyer's. Attack them when they're unprepared, or attack them where they're unprepared. Here's a classical Chinese down at the bottom. Uh, it's, it's, Ambiguous enough that both of those translations are correct, depending on how you want to interpret the context. Uh, the two examples that are given in the section are Operation Overboard prior to uh, D-Day, and then Operation Opera, where the uh, Israelis attacked the Osirak uh, reactor in Baghdad back in 1981. And uh, great examples of, of deception, I think we'd agree with that. But I argue that the overall uh, presentation of deception in these texts is a lot different than we might have thought going in. Let's talk about cross-domain strategies for a few minutes. Um, I focus on military factors, but there are also other factors in there. Address a bit in the Sunza, and when you read the PLA texts, they're highlighted even more. Winning without fighting, um, I think a lot of you who have read the Sunza are familiar with this. The most superior strategy in warfare is to attack enemy's plans, alliances, troops, and then Worst is to attack small cities. Common sense stuff that you, you read about, you probably discussed a lot if you took this in the class. Um, I like Victor Mayer's translation better. He said to, it, you're not attacking the enemy's plans, you're stymieing the enemy's plans. And uh, stymieing his alliances and stymieing his troops. I think that gives a better appreciation for what you're actually trying to do. You're, you're, you're trying to um, uh, not really do it overtly. Maybe a little bit overtly, but what you're really trying to do is, is do things without fight. And Ridley also says you know, the, uh, the explanation in his text he says that thought should mean swell by, which means to thwart or frustrate and stymie. So that's what you're trying to do in these cases. And I'll give you a couple examples on the next couple of pages. This is enabled by a digital world, uh, as you can imagine, and you'll, you'll understand that in the next couple, uh, next couple of slides. Uh, and there's a great text that just came out a couple of years ago called Sun Tzu Talk Modern Warfare, uh, which I love and I'm still working my way through. And it highlights that Sun Tzu is not just military applications. Stymie plays, for example, 
this is what, uh, so it's made fun of modern warfare says, what you're supposed to be doing is you fuse political, military, economic, science and technology, and cultural means into uh, an integrated national strategy to comprehensively adopt nonviolent means to transcend warfare. I translate that as anything can be weaponized. Yeah, anything you want to use as a weapon in your arsenal, you can weaponize. Uh, and it doesn't mean going to war. He further explains, the text further explains, to expansively make use of economic warfare, foreign relations warfare, cultural attacks, espionage warfare, public opinion, propaganda warfare, and military means. The examples that are used in the text, the US stymies the Iraqi effort to drag Israel into war. And I put that in quotation marks because that's how it is described back in 1991. The youth that, that the Iraqis tried to drag Israel into war by firing missiles at them. And then the SDI, this is used in a lot of texts, a lot of but several different examples. This text argues that the U.S. had neither the plan nor the technology to do this when they announced Star Wars, when they announced the SDI. But they announced it anyway. And the USSR responded by huge budget increases that basically bankrupting the country. So, stymieing plans, stymieing alliances, dividing and disintegrating enemy alliances while concurrently strengthening your own alliances. Diplomacy is the primary means of attacking enemy alliances, and they're supplemented by military means. Examples of this, uh, the way that the U.S. and the Allies forced Saddam to, uh, to comply with their weapons inspections, going back weapons inspections in the 1990s. The Cuban Missile Crisis was actually a case of stymieing both plans and alliances. Plans of the blockade, the U.S. did a worldwide military mobilization. Uh, the alliances were stymied. Lots of diplomatic pressure. Uh, NATO, the Organization of American States, press, so on and so forth. So you can see, this isn't theoretical, this isn't just theoretical, this is, this is practical. And the way it's described in Sons of Fun Modern Warfare, it's a, very, it's a very practical application. And this kind of ties into another topic, which is not specifically in the Sunza, but I argue is influenced by the Sunza. This is a concept that um, the, the PLA, or actually the, PLA, the CCP came up with, uh, back in the uh, early 2000 period, uh, the, the idea of the three warfares. It's a means to an end. It's another way of winning without fighting. It's conducted during peacetime. And uh, the components are psychological warfare, which, are, which target the militaries, media and public opinion warfare, which targets the public, and then legal warfare or lawfare, which targets political and multinational organizations. Uh, tied in with this, not, not specifically a component of it, but kind of overlapping with it. It's a concept written about in the mid-first uh, uh, first decade uh, of the century. Um, what this idea of moral warfare, weaponizing morality. Uh, it's conducted both during peacetime and wartime. It's, it has both offensive and defensive components, depending on you know, what side you're on. And just to be clear, it's not referring to anything about Augustinian just war theory. That's a totally different but basically what it's saying is you're, you're weaponizing morality to the point where you, you try and uh, affect public opinion warfare, you try and degrade psychological war and the psychological uh, situation with your, your adversaries, military, so on and so forth. It does eliminate the likelihood of a real war, uh, but it's, I argue it's consistent with Simsian concepts of deception. And there are two really good books that recently came out. One is from uh, irsem.fr, if you go to that website, uh, French, uh, French DOD equivalent, uh, called Chinese Influence Operations, a Machiavellian Moment. About a 600-page document talking about the three warfares. It's, it's spectacular. It was originally written in French, French, of course, and they were kind enough to come up with an English translation about six months later. And then Kerry Gershanik has written a great book on political warfare, you can get that for free. Both these books are free. Uh, from the US Marine Corps University.edu. Uh, you go to the, their website, look for political warfare by Gershanik, and uh, that'll, uh, uh, that's another great book to read. So, is this all theory? You know, is this just you know, stuff that's happened in history or is it happening today? I argue that a good case study for all these ideas is Taiwan's reunification campaign that, that the RC is currently pushing. 
it's coordinated, it's cross-domain, it's being done in peacetime, and it has all these three, or all these four components, political, economic, military, and social. Whether it's checkbook diplomacy, trying to isolate Taiwan, whether it's embargoing Taiwanese pineapples because of some condition, uh, because the PRC is what's the largest importer of, of uh, Taiwanese pineapples. Uh, ADIS penetrations, you just see the picture down the lower right-hand side uh, from uh, The Economist a couple, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's military. Uh, and then exercises that are being conducted in the vicinity of Taiwan. And then finally, social, overt, covert media warfare, which is ongoing all the time, whether you want to read Global Times, whether you want to read, uh, you know, watch CGTN documentaries on, on YouTube, whatever. All this stuff is ongoing. The goal is to have a unilateral surrender by Taiwan. Uh, the PRC doesn't want to go to war. They want Taiwan to surrender. They want to, they say, rejoin them, reunify with the mainland. The narrative is, up in the upper right hand corner, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And uh, my question to you is more of a rhetorical question. Uh, this idea of stymieing plans and alliances, which it seems like this is doing, is it working? And my answer is it depends on how aware you are. If you're not aware of it, it's working. That's, that's one level of, of working. Uh, another is if it's being carried out, how are you responding? And if you're ignoring it, even though you're aware of it, it's not good. So I argue, you know, this is an example of uh, how uh, this is used in Eastern. Takeaways. Uh, you can read these as well as I can read them out to you at home. Uh, read anything on this except to say Sunza is relevant to modern warfare. I hope I I hope I've shown you that the PLA believes that at least. And uh, I hope that's about it. Thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take any questions if you might have. Yes? What other related works would you recommend for somebody looking into, uh, looking more in on this, besides the ones that you referenced to in the slides? I would. I would recommend getting those two books and then harvesting the bibliography. That's probably the best way to do it because I'm far from an expert on political warfare, and those those are the real. I mean, those, those are two real expert sources. Uh, there have been some other, a couple of think tanks I think have written some articles on on the three warfares in the last three or four years, and um, there have been some other academic uh, publications on them. Uh, so if you do a, a Literature search. Uh, I'm sure you can find. So you can search on three warfare's. Search on political warfare. Those types of things. Sir, are you familiar with uh, unrestricted warfare? Yep. Yep. So, um, for one of my classes, we were discussing the book, and one of the questions that came up was, why would two PLA colonels publish a book detailing uh, the PRC's military strategy? And is this a trick, or should we actually? <laughs> Um, take the information in the book, and I'm wondering, do you have any like sort of opinions on the validity of the information? Um, I I would ask the same questions you just said, you know, which is why would they do something like that? Because I, I argue that anything this is the beginning. Anything that's put out some kind of PLA association is is I would argue de facto approved by the PLA. Um, so they, they put it out there for a reason. Maybe it was the idea of, you know, they do a real good job of media warfare. And uh, maybe the idea is to go out and to uh, convince convince the rest of the world that it's a done deal. That uh, you know, we, we're going to do what we want to do. Taiwan, or China is going to rise the way it wants to. Taiwan is going to become part of China uh, again, from their perspective. And so, could be part of that media warfare campaign as well. I don't know. Is that, is that yeah. actual? Okay. Sir? Do we expect media warfare is still working against Taiwan now? Uh, we have media warfare impression that he would fall in three days, and that clearly is not the case. The attorneys are still picking strong. Do you think after that example, the Taiwanese will see that and say, okay, well, but this time it's different? I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
approaches taken to media warfare aren't static. I guess that's one of the things um, the, the, the media warfare enterprise in the, in the um, PRC is, is effective at responding to actual circumstances. So they may have other tricks up their sleeve. They may have, may have other approaches that they're trying to use that may not be as apparent. And uh, I guess that's, I don't know if that answers the Are there any points that stand out to you as being significantly different between the PLA's um, understanding of the of the SIMS and compared to general Western approaches towards warfare? I think one of the big ones is, is deception. Uh, that that really struck me. I think we read in the West. I think we have a tendency to read the SIMS either a lot more liberally and look and look at it as an old book really not pay much attention to it at all. Or some people really read the sunset and they go to town with it. And they, they come up with all sorts of interesting theories. Um, I typically refer to the sunset as a very malleable text. Uh, if you take things out of context, it's really easy to prove whatever you want to prove. And um, so those are, those are some of the cases too. That's why it's so important to understand it so you don't end up projecting what, what your perspective is on what the actual situation is. So. Happy to, happy to, if you have any other questions, I'm happy to answer them for you. Please. Yes. Uh, Professor Metcalf, I wanted to ask you, during the Cold War, the Soviets published all sorts of official documents. Some of them were of a very light classification and others were effectively public and our uh, Joint Publications Research Service uh, would translate them so that there could be a much wider audience of American analysts. And these publications would sometimes have deceptive information in them. So, for example, for years, uh, the Soviets would say that they had a fundamentally uh, offensive military doctrine, but then, ten years later, a new edition of the same book would be published, and you look in the passage where it says that it's supposed to say that it's offensive, and now they declare that the Soviet Union has a defensive military doctrine. And, I mean, that's just one example with which I happen to be familiar. And I'm wondering to what extent you have seen this kind of thing in the Chinese literature. I've seen a lot of consistency. Uh, and the, the text, the, the versions of the Sunza I have, uh, the Sunza PLA text, go back probably to the uh, beginning of the beginning of the century. They're, they're remarkably consistent. I think part of that is because um, the party really emphasizes consistency. It doesn't like to go back and retract things that it said. So, you, 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 from the beginning of the of the, uh, um, of the PRC up to you know, the latest press conference from the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, China's strategy is always defensive. That's not changed, but you look at how the how the, the concept of defensive or how defensive is defined. There, there, tweaks that have been done over the over the 70, 75 years since that happened. So I think it's more a, a sense of uh, staying consistent with what you've written and changing definitions than it is something as blatant as you're talking about. This. Do you see the same consistency attributed to their confidence or their ideology throughout the years and under the CDP administration in the sense that uh, they truly believe that they are smarter than the West and that their goal is to be, you know, like, um, 
the leader of a, of a humankind destiny. Um, could you see that uh, confidence, I guess, in, uh, in this consistency, which is why they don't change their doctrine throughout the years? Um, I think part of it is just, it, it, it's, the party, I think, has, is, has instilled this idea. It's almost like a manifest destiny. That, you know, I, like we've had in, in the West for, or we've had in the U.S. for, for a couple of centuries, um, or had in the U.S. for a couple of centuries. Um, but another aspect of it is they, they like to stay consistent. They don't, they don't, don't like to change things. Um, it's only when you, when you have, every once in a while, when somebody go back and say, oh, now here's the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Xi Jinping just re-edited the history of the Chinese Communist Party this last spring or last fall. I just got my copy a couple of weeks ago. And you know, that's that's party, literally the party line. That's what the party says history is. Uh, you're not allowed to deviate from that. Um, because if you deviate and then you start to, and the cracks start to appear, um, perhaps the party's going to lose some of its legitimacy. So legitimacy is, is extreme. Question about consistency relative to time frame in terms of objectives, or, or in general, there seems to be not as much of a rush to accomplish mission A or mission B. Kind of work in, in a sense on siphoning or eroding, eroding and erosion takes time. Siphoning might even take time. And to, to what degree is our way of doing it's a little bit more deadline driven. Uh, to what degree is that a, a disadvantage, and, and how do we how do we balance that out? Wow. Um, I, first thing is is recognizing recognizing that this is happening, and saying, okay, if this is happening, how should we respond, and how shouldn't we respond, and then take things from there. Um, I'll go back to one of the earlier slides that says PLA officers are instructed to deal with the reality that they're facing, not with the plan that they set up before they go to war. And that's that's the guidance for us. And it, it, you know, again, that's that, that's supposedly what we're all taught, but that's not human nature. So I guess that would be my advice. Sure, question. You mentioned that. Since it was uh, about deception and concealing restraints, and how does that reconcile with like PLA and the Chinese government um, when they kind of revealed themselves when they took Hong Kong and established the national security law? And I mean, it was kind of blasting everyone for, the, for a lot of democracies to sympathize. And then what they're doing with Taiwan, I mean, how do they reconcile that with what Susan was saying? Is there a moment in Sunsa that says, okay, now is the time to? I think that's where politics takes over, and that's where the party says our goal is to reunify with all the parts of China that used to be Chinese from our perspective. And so uh, that's that's something that's it, it's an internal matter, and whatever they do in Hong Kong, whatever they do with Taiwan, uh, is internal. No other country has the right to criticize that, and that's their story, and they're sticking to it. Uh, again. Week after week after week, in the uh, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs press conferences, you get that line. Uh, whenever somebody asks a question of whether, you know, whether it's human rights, whether you know, whatever, whatever it is, that's the that's the party line. And I think I don't see I don't see where they're going to be changing it. Hi, I'm Jen Wang. I'm a Chinese American from Japan, and I'm very curious about uh, from the point of view of Sunset. Uh, how do they how do they uh, evaluate the Chinese government now? Do they think about the part of the U.S. military or? Do they... I I can't answer based on anything I've read. I apologize. I haven't I haven't read anything where uh, where it talks about Japan except some of the historical examples, but. But then those typically have one purpose, which is to is to you know, demonize Japan, in, 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 which is a very, very common.
common technique. Um, but from a sensei perspective, I'm, I'm, really, I'm sorry, but I don't know. I haven't read anything on that. But that's something to look out for. 